Well, let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. It has been said that love makes the world go round. Love has been called the universal language. Countless songs and poems and movies and plays have been dedicated to explaining love and celebrating it. But even our best depictions of love fall far short of God's glorious ideal. God says in 1 Corinthians 13 that faith, hope, and love abide, but love is the greatest, that love never fails. Jesus taught very clearly on love's supremacy. He assured us by saying God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He instructed us to love even our enemies. And here in Matthew 22, he declares that loving God and loving your neighbor is God's highest requirement of you. And today what we're going to see is, while love is an overworked and overused and misunderstood word, we're going to see what it really means to love God and love your neighbor. So take your Bibles, look at Matthew 22, and stand with me to read God's word. We'll be reading verses 34 to 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your presence with us. We thank you, Lord, for assurance of forgiveness and of your mercy and grace. And Lord, we pray now that we would get out of the way and that you would have your way with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in week seven of an eight-week series within our long exposition, our verse-by-verse study in the Gospel of Matthew. This series I've entitled Unrivaled, Christ's Authority in a Rebel World. How Jesus' opponents kept trying to trip him up. Now I know you're smart, you know that this is not a mini-series, this is part of a long series in Matthew. In fact, uh, we'll take a few weeks break at Christmas in Matthew and and take a look at Isaiah chapter 9 and what it says about the coming Messiah. But uh, once we get into the new year, we're going to look at chapter 23 and another series within the series, Seven Woes, Seven Words, what Jesus had to say about the scribes and the Pharisees. But I know you're smarter than that, and you know these are not mini-series. These are part of the bigger series of our commitment to go verse by verse through Matthew. And so we are looking at at what Jesus' opponents were doing to try to trip Jesus up, trying to get him to say something with which they could accuse him. First First up were the Pharisees and the Herodians, who brought a political question to Jesus, about whether it was right or not to pay the poll tax. Next up were the Sadducees, who brought a religious question, a theological question, about the resurrection. 
Their whole motive was to try to discredit the resurrection as an absurd idea. And now the Pharisees come back with a theological question. Verse 34, the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. That word silence literally means to muzzle. It means he shut them up. It means they couldn't say anything. They were speechless before the wisdom of Jesus. They heard that he had muzzled the Sadducees, and so they met together. Literally, they conspired together. They basically had a staff meeting. They, they huddled up, and they decided to send in their big gun. They decided to send in the ringer, a lawyer. Now, I realize a lot of jokes can be made about that. But verse 35, it tells us that a lawyer came to Jesus to test him, to ask him a question in order to test him. This lawyer was a scribe of the Pharisees. In those days, those that were considered lawyers were experts in the law of Moses. But they dealt both with religious and civil matters, kind of like a cross between a lawyer and a biblical counselor. And he comes to Jesus in verse 36. He says, teacher... Which is the greatest commandment? You've kind of got to wonder why he would ask such a question. It seems like such an easy question with a really easy answer. So why would he ask Jesus this question thinking that he was going to trip Jesus up? I think one of two explanations might work. First of all, maybe he figured that Jesus would be stumped by the sheer number of choices that, that the, the Pharisees thought he had at his disposal. The Pharisees and, and their rabbis had basically come up with the idea that because there were 613 letters in the Ten Commandments as given, that there must be 613 separate commandments that God wanted them to keep. In fact, they had ways of, of slicing and dicing these commandments. There were the heavyweight commandments. There were the lightweight commandments. They also said, well... There are 248 positive commandments, things you are supposed to do. They thought it was one for every part of the human body. That was their way of thinking. Then they said there are 365 negative commandments, things you are not supposed to do, one for every day of the year. This was their system that they had created. And so maybe they were thinking, Jesus will be stumped by the sheer number of choices. What's he going to pick out of the 613? Another option is that maybe they thought that Jesus would come up with a new commandment that would supersede Moses, that he would say something like, hey, I'm, I'm better than Moses and I'll prove it to you. Here's a new commandment. And that's, maybe they were thinking, okay, we'll get him on that. But whatever the case, he comes up to test Jesus. Now, he seems a little more sincere than those who've come before, but needless to say, he came to test him so he was just as evil and complicit in this plan as the rest of the Pharisees. And Jesus' answer, verse 37, is awesome. Jesus gives them God's word. He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. He gives them the Shema, which was recited twice daily. He gave them something that every good observant Jew would be reciting two times every single day of their life. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This was the most well-known, overarching expectation of anyone who wanted to follow God. It was the duty of every person. This was Jesus' answer. 
Now those who heard him speak had their lives all wrapped up in practices that I'll just sum up like this. They were all about phylacteries and mezuzahs. They were all wrapped up. Their life revolved around phylacteries and mezuzahs. Phylacteries was, were, were small leather containers that they would take pieces of parchment and write down Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. And they would put that in those containers and they would wear them on their foreheads and on their left arm. It was to remind them of God's word. It was to remind them of God's requirement for them to love God. And then mezuzahs were these copies of the similar verses, but in small boxes that they would post on their doorposts. So as they went in and out of their homes, they would be reminded of God's requirement for them to love Him. The only problem was they were so worried about observing these, basically what had become rituals for them, that they missed the point. It was on their homes, but it didn't get into their hearts. Their their lives weren't affected to the point where there was heart change as a result. So Jesus gives them what they already knew, but didn't live. But he gives them something else too. It's a two for here, two for one. He says, this is the greatest commandment. They asked him, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. But then he gives them a second one. Because without the second one, the first isn't going to make sense in their life. The first and the second The second and the first, they go together. So Jesus says, the second is like it. It is not the most important. But if you're going to believe the first, you've got to practice the second. The second is like it. It is similar. It is not as important, but it is really important. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting Leviticus 19. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love the Lord, you shall, excuse me, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Thus says the Lord. God's stamp of approval is on it. This is what you are to do. You are to love God. You are to love your neighbor. Then Jesus says in verse 40, on these two commands, the whole law and the prophets, all the scriptures you know, he's telling them, depend on these two things. Loving God and loving your neighbor is really summing up everything that's taught in the Old Testament. You look at the Ten Commandments, and you see that some of them are focused on love for God, and some based on that love for God, and then are focused on love for others. You can see in the New Testament, everything that a believer is required to do is based upon loving God and loving others. Look at 1 John chapter 4. 1 John 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13 and verse 8. It says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Everything that is required of of a follower of Christ is really summed up in the idea of loving God and loving your neighbor. 
Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, Whatever you wish others to do to you, do also for them, for this is the law and the prophets. He's making the point that it all points to him. It's all about loving him and others because he first loved us. So Jesus is making it very simple for them and saying, here it is. First of all, love God. But don't forget to love your neighbor as well. Do both. Love God and love your neighbor. It's that simple. But we know it's not that simple in real life. We know it's not that simple in daily living to do those two things. And isn't it easy to misunderstand the intent? Isn't it easy to misunderstand the meaning? Our own words and our own actions show, uh, become clear that we often misunderstand these words of Jesus. But it's really easy just in anything in life to misunderstand what's being said. I was recently at a benefit dinner for a local school. And the master of ceremonies got up and he made an announcement. He said, there has been an anonymous donor who has given $100,000 to the school. And then he said, and by the way, this anonymous donor is willing to match that, to double it, to the first person present right now who gives another 100000 So you'll have, the school will have 300000 Everyone's jaws are like dropping to the ground. They couldn't believe. Wow, someone gave 100000 And now if someone right now gives 100000 it'll be doubled again. So it, it's now tripled. So in the room... Someone right then raises their hand and gives $100,000. Holds up their little ticket they had and, and simultaneously the whole room stood up. It was kind of embarrassing. Stood up and gave them a standing ovation. But there was one problem. There was a language barrier and the person didn't realize what was being asked. And so really quickly, the, the principal went up to the master of ceremonies and whispered in his ear and said, oh, there's been a slight misunderstanding. They weren't giving 100,000. I think they thought they were giving 1,000, which is a lot, by the way, but not 100. And so they had to go back to the drawing board on, on the request. But it's really easy, isn't it, to misunderstand what is being said or misunderstand the intent of, of what is being said. And very often we do that with the biggies, with with loving God and and loving others. We think that maybe it's just based on emotion. Isn't it true that sometimes when we think about love, we think it's based on emotion? Even loving God? Well, if God gives me everything I want in life, if things work out the way I want, if I like the way things are going, I really love God. But if things don't work out the way I want, if things aren't working out the way I'd like them to work out, then I'm not sure exactly how I feel about God. Plenty of people think that way. Plenty of professing believers live that way. It's emotion-driven all the time, and how they feel is what they think is objective truth in their life. It's the same way with people. If people are giving us what we want, if people are treating us nicely, if people are doing what we want them to do, then we, we say we love them. But if they don't, we reconsider. There are generations, uh, older generations in America that rarely said, I love you. But when they did, they meant it. Our generation, we say, I love you all the time and rarely mean it. It's, it's a 
a shadow of, of reality that we live in. So what I want to do is try to close the gap between our understanding of what God is saying and reality. About what God is really expecting of us and our understanding of it. Because it is true that we think that it's all about emotion. We also sometimes think it's all about if I can find the least common denominator, what I can do to the simplest, easiest thing I can do to still be all right with God, the least amount I can do towards others to still be classified as loving others, and we try to find the easy way out. So I want us to try to close the gap between Jesus' expectation and our understanding. And I think to do that, we need to make two clarifications to hopefully close that gap. The first clarification will have to do with loving God, the second with loving others. So first of all, with loving God. Loving God is not mere emotion, but wholehearted devotion. It is not rooted in mere emotion, in in our feelings. It is all about a total yielding of our hearts and of our lives to God himself. When I think of total yielding, I think of Abraham and Isaac. I think of Isaac resolving himself to go up the mountain and even sacrifice his son as God asked him to. When I think of total yielding, I think of Noah building the ark. That in spite of the opposition, Noah continued the plan to build this big boat and it wasn't raining, it was nowhere near a flood. But he was totally yielded to the plan that God had put him in, even though he might not have been feeling it. When Abraham was walking up the hill, probably everything within him was thinking, this can't be the plan. When Noah was being ridiculed about building an ark, he must have thought, Is this really the plan? Did I get it right? Did I misunderstand? When I think about wholehearted devotion, I think of a mother with a newborn child and how that mother's life is is fixated so rightly upon the well-being of that child. Even as that child is growing in her womb, she is caring for that child. She is loving that child. She is thinking about what is best. What can I do right now that will make it best for this child to enter this world healthy? And once the baby is born, you're, you're thinking to yourself, geographically, this baby is going to be near me all the time. And I'm going to be thinking relationally, what is best for this child? And then you'll be thinking practically, what needs does this baby have that I need to meet? Wholehearted devotion. But we think that love is an emotion. We think it's emotion-driven, feeling-oriented. Or we look for the easiest way. But love is so much more than is commonly thought. Look at the Bible words, the Hebrew word for love. The Hebrew word for love is aheb, and it means an act of the will. It's something you decide. It's, it's something you resolve in your mind to do. It's, it's a determined decision that you make to care for the well-being of someone else. It's a dedication that you make. It's a, it's a choice. It's love that, that sees something and then decides to do what is good and right and true no matter how one is feeling. 
Now, the Hebrew word for love is, is pretty much equal to the Greek word agape love. We say, oh, I love you with God's love. I love you with agape love. But we don't know what we're talking about most of the time. The Greek word agapeo, it, it means loving others on purpose. It's the same idea that it's an act of the will that causes you to decide to love people on purpose. It is not phileo love, that's that emotional friendship love. It is not eros, which isn't even in the New Testament, that physical romantic love. Agape love is, at, at, at its baseline, is deciding love. Love that decides to act for the good of another. Think about Jesus using these, these terms for, for how a person ought to love God. He said you ought to love the Lord your God. He makes it personal. The Lord your God. He makes it personal with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And you put those things together and what he's saying is you love God with the totality of who you are. You love God. You are to love God. This is what God expects. You love Him with everything you have. And you look at these words, and they all mean something. Your heart. It's the core of your being. It's who you are. It's, it's your character. Your soul. It's the seat of your emotions. Emotions are a part of the picture, but not the whole part of the picture. They don't drive the bus. The seat of your emotions, the seat of your affections, and your mind. It's where your thoughts live. It's the home of your thoughts. It's, it's your intellect. It's, it's your determination to do something. Your heart and your soul and your mind. But it is not based merely on feelings. So it's a valid question for a person to ask, a person who's saying, hey, I love God. It is valid for that person to say, how do I know if I really love God? How do I know? Because if, remember, it's not based on your feelings. So you've got to appeal to objective truth. You've got to be tested by God's word. We know that love for God is a mark of a true believer. So how do you know if you really love God? Now think about for a moment before I answer the question. Think about who Jesus was dealing with here. He's dealing with Pharisees. He's dealing with Herodians. He's dealing with Sadducees. All people that had united together in hatred for God. So here's Jesus giving an answer that's in direct opposition to what they were giving him. They're hating him. He's telling them, you're to love God. Literally, you're supposed to love me. So it's a, it's a, a, a great divide between where they were and where they were supposed to be. But how do you know if you really love God? First, go with me to 1 John chapter 4. John explains it really clearly, really well. The Holy Spirit makes it very evident to us what the first mark is of, of, of if you really love God. See, if you really love God, you will believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord, and that belief will not be just a mind belief or a mental exercise. It will be a complete yielding of your life, your heart and your soul and your mind. 1 John, in chapter 4, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God. The idea of being born again by the Spirit of God, and knows God. 
Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God has sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. There's the purpose of Jesus, God the son, the, 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 the word made flesh who was there at creation by, uh, by whom all things hold together. He came into the world so that we might live through him. Verse 10 says, if this, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a, very, is a very important word. The atoning sacrifice for our sins. The substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. The re, uh, redeeming sacrifice for our sins. The merciful sacrifice for our sins in our place for our life. In this is love, not that, he loved, not that we loved him, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, verse 11, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So it's not a one-sided thing. It's not just towards us. It, it affects us. It transforms us. It changes us. So the first thing is, if you, do you really love God? Well, do you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord? If not, you don't love God. If not, you're fooling yourself on that. And if you love God in that way, you will seek his glory. Psalm 63, 1, the psalmist said, oh, oh God, you are my God, and I will eagerly seek you. will earnestly seek you. My soul thirsts for you. If you love Jesus as Savior and Lord, you will be thirsting after God. You won't be able to get enough of God. You will be in love with him. You will be in love with Jesus. And it's not an emotion-driven thing. It's actions that you decide upon about a course of life that include your emotions but aren't driven by them. And if you seek his glory, you'll be seeking his guidance. You'll want that assurance from Psalm 32, 8 where God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. You'll be seeking that. And you'll be seeking to obey him. Psalm 119, verse 11, I've stored up your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. John, in John chapter 14, makes it really clear that if you say you love God, you will obey his word. John 14, verse 23, Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. You don't get clearer than that. If you love Jesus, you'll keep his word. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Your life will be the residence of God Almighty. You will seek His glory. You will seek His guidance. You will seek to obey Him and to trust Him and share Him. Uh, Psalm 145 verse 4 says that one generation shall commend your works to another. Declare your mighty acts. You will want to do that. The first clarification that must be given is that loving God is not about emotion. It is about total devotion to Him. The second one is similar, just like Jesus said. It's about loving your neighbor. Because the one who says they love God loves the, the people that God loves. And so the second thing, regarding loving your neighbor, it's not mere civility, the idea of putting up with people, but it is committed responsibility. It is the idea of a commitment, a willing sacrifice for the good of others that you make. If loving God is a total yielding of your life, then loving neighbor is a total serving with your life. 
That's the idea. Now, here is where we'd like to take a left turn and go down another road. Because now, this is going to cost us. The first one costs us immensely. God gives us all. Christ gives us all. And he asks for all. He asks for everything. But here, the rubber meets the road because now, loving neighbor, you have to deal with people. And we all know what that's like. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. People will take that and twist it a different way and say, oh, I need to learn to love myself. I need to learn to pamper myself. I need to learn to coddle myself. No, it's not I need to learn to love myself. You need to do what Jesus said. Love your neighbor as yourself. What does that mean? What he's saying is every person loves themselves immensely and works with all their might to make sure that their good is addressed, that their needs are met, and that what they want is angled for. Jesus is saying, you make sure your needs are met. Everyone knows that. And it's a self-centered thing, but it's also self-preservation. You need to eat. You need to wear clothes. All that stuff. But you make sure, it's, it's a moot point, you make sure your needs are met. So he's saying in the same way, make sure your neighbor's needs are met. Work just as hard as you work towards yourself for the good of others. You are totally committed to your good, totally committed to your needs, your best interests, so be totally committed to others' goods and others' needs and others' best interests. Did you know there's an election on Tuesday? We're having an election on Tuesday. And it doesn't matter if it's the lowest civic election or if it's for the highest office in the land. Every candidate is promising things. And they are saying to you, though they might not use these words, I love you. Because I'm going to, I'm going to work tirelessly for your best interests. I'm going to represent you. And only God knows who really means it and who really is going to do it. But guess what? Every candidate is making that statement. I'm going to work for your good. I love you. Now, some people think in life that they can just explain away what Jesus says. And people will say, well, yeah, he said love my neighbor as myself. But you know what? My neighbor is someone I live near and are superficially nice to. And it's a reciprocal relationship. We like it this way. We put up with each other. We're, we're civil to each other. We'll wave, we'll smile. But I'm not having them over for dinner and I'm surely not going to try to meet their needs because did you see what they built on my back fence? I got great neighbors, by the way. Praise God, I got the best neighbors. But I know what neighbors are like. I don't hope you're not that neighbor. Well, let me just say, many people say, hey, look, the neighbor thing, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, other people will say, hey, well, no, neighbor, that just means fellow believers. You just have to worry about the people in the church. Well, how's that going? What did Jesus say? You love your neighbor as yourself. How would Jesus make it clear who, who, who neighbor is? Well, he made it clear over and over again. It's everyone. Love your enemies. Everybody's included. Your friends are included in that one. If you're loving your enemies, you're loving your friends. Think about the story of the Good Samaritan. Your neighbor is everyone. Everyone. Mm, that's tough. So how do we treat our neighbors? 
how we treat the, our own family, how do we treat the family of God. Hey, by the way, did you know that there was a marathon that was supposed to happen today in New York City? It got canceled. Did you hear? It got canceled. Because the people that were organizing it said, you know what? There's bigger things going on than a running race. And there's people's lives at stake. And we are going to make a decision that won't feel good and that will cost us and a lot of people money and time and effort. But we're going to make a decision based upon the community interest ahead of our own. Well, there are people that came from all over the world didn't just show up yesterday either they came early to get acclimated and all that stuff and they are running because they decided there are bigger things going on there are more important things to attend to that's what we need to do we need to decide no matter how much it hurts us that there are other things more important than our own interests Philippians 2 made it really clear You know what I would say we should do? We should be involved with good selfishness, godly selfishness, not for yourself, but for others. That you would be so intent on working for God's glory and the good of others that people might even say, what is wrong with you? That we would engage in days and months and weeks and lives of generosity. It's awesome to give a, a, a once-a-year offering. It's, it's beautiful to do that. We're giving to people in other countries who don't have the resources monetarily that we do. We're helping support national missionaries. That's, that's awesome. We're, we're going to give gifts to kids who, who's uh, on behalf of the parent, in the parent's name, for those who can't be with their kids at, at Christmas. That's, that's awesome. But we should be doing lives of generosity and giving on an ongoing basis to meet the needs of others and it should hurt us. We should be loving our family. Whoever God gave you to live with, your household, you should be loving them. That is the first group that you need to engage with spiritually, emotionally, relationally, Mentally, You should gather together as a household around God's word and open it up and say, what does God say about how we ought to live our lives? And you should pray together in dependence upon God and say, we can't do this on our own. And you should do people stuff with them. Ask them how they're doing, how they're, what they're struggling with, what's going on. Try to understand what they're going through. Well, we say, well, yeah, that's a good one on the, on the family side. And yeah, I'm not that good at it, but I want to be better. Okay. But how about your friends? Not just your family, but your friends. You know, sometimes with family and friends, you've got to tell the truth lovingly and not condone sin. We sometimes think, well, I'm loving them, so I'm not going to say anything. That could be the most unloving thing you could do. To speak the truth and love towards them. What if they were, what if an oncoming train was coming right at them and they were tied to the track? You would do anything you could to get them off there. So it's not a loving thing to ignore or to condone sin. So sometimes you need to love them by telling them the truth and exposing it so that health can come back or flourish. So the family and friends thing, I I get that, but now we come to the the foes, (laughs) loving our foes, loving our enemies. Hmm. Yeah, we need to bless. No payback. 
No payback for the negative or the positive. See, no payback for the negative. Don't, don't return cursing for cursing. But also, if someone gives you a gift, it doesn't mean you have to give them the same thing back because you you're somehow have to do reciprocity or whatever to, to make it even the score. We try to even the score positively and negatively, and we just need to love. Sometimes we just need to say thank you. So what might your resolve be today? What might God be putting in your mind to do good for his glory and the good of others today? Something you know of that isn't easy. Something you know of that isn't just automatic. Something you know of that, that it will be a sacrifice that you can willingly make for the good of someone else, for the sake of Christ. Maybe it's in your own home. Maybe it's among your friends. Maybe it's even amongst your foes. Love God and he will love others through you. Now it takes a yieldedness to Christ. Here we have this beautiful statement from Jesus regarding love and regarding how our devotion to God and commitment to others must be rooted in it. How love must motivate us to work for and live for God's glory and others' good. But it won't just happen on accident. It won't just happen because we say so. It will happen because we live so. It needs to be cultivated. A love for God and a love for others must be cultivated. When I was a little kid, my Saturdays were spent either playing sports, football, basketball, and baseball on on organized teams, or doing yard work. And my favorite job was to do the cultivating, where I would be given a trowel or other sharp garden uh, implement, and I would break up the ground in order for the ground to be ready for seeds and the ground to be more healthy because the ground gets hard when you don't pay attention to it. The Bible talks about it as fallow ground and about breaking up your fallow ground, what's been left alone, a field that's been left without water and without attention gets hard and brittle. My backyard has some places like that where a a shovel won't break through it. But it needs to be worked. It needs to be an ongoing focused effort of ours where we we cultivate a love for God and a love for others. And that takes the decision of your will where you decide, I'm going to do this regardless of the cost. In closing, let me just say that Jesus... Jesus said in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, is there anyone you would die for? Just wondering. Anyone you would die for? I guarantee that you would die for your family. You would. Parents for kids, of course. I'm even uh, confident that, that some of us would die for our friends. But I'm also pretty sure that almost none of us would die for our foes, for our enemies. Um, the, the beggar in, in, the, in the streets in Calcutta, the, the, the prisoner on death row, or Charles Manson. Let's just make it California-centric here. We wouldn't. Praise God that Jesus died for his enemies so that we might become his friends. Romans 5 tells us while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2 says we were dead in our transgressions and our sins. 
God makes us alive together with Christ. You know what that means? Jesus died for dead enemies. And he made them friends. He made them alive so that we might turn and do what he has done. He went to the uttermost, totally committed to God's glory, totally committed to our good, so that we would do likewise. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you call us friends when we do what you command. And Lord, we pray that our devotion to you and commitment to others would be total, yielded to you, knowing we can't do it apart from you, but we can do it through you. Thank you, Lord, that you have made the purpose of living um, the adoration of you and the cherishing of others. And only by your grace can we do that. And so we pray for your grace. We thank you in Jesus' name.